But let's uh, get down to Stephen Hawking and the Grand Designer. And I'll just refer to Hawking uh, as the lead author of this book. They start off by saying, where did all this come from? Where did it come from? Did the universe need a creator? Well, of course, the biblical view is that the answer to that question is most assuredly yes. In the beginning, God created. There was a beginning, there was God, and then he created everything else apart from himself. But according to Hawking, like those old films where the newspaper comes spinning out on the screen. I love that effect. <laughs> it made front page news in the Times, also made uh, headlines across the pond in America. The Times here, Hawking, quote, God did not create universe. Uh, all I can say is Hawking must have a really good publicity. Uh, you wouldn't get, um, you know, Bishop says God did create universe on the front page of the Times. Uh, tells you uh, something interesting, I think, about our media culture, maybe. To think about uh, who's right and who's wrong on this issue, we need to examine uh, a series of issues. We'll first of all look a little bit at Hawking on philosophy, because uh, really Hawking here is a scientist doing philosophy. He's stepping outside of his expertise. Um, So we won't need uh, to do any uh, big mathematical equations or anything this morning. Don't worry. We'll just need to uh, think a little carefully about things. We'll think about Hawking on philosophy. We'll think about the Big Bang and how that maybe relates to belief in God. We'll think about uh, another argument for God called the first cause argument, and finally a third argument called the fine-tuning argument. All of these are things that Hawking and Lord now deal with in their books. So Hawking and philosophy. Traditionally, they say these questions about where did everything come from, did it need a creator, and so on, these are questions for philosophy. But philosophy is dead. I'm here today as the representative of a dodo subject. <laughs> Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Well, here's a quote from John Lennox, whose book I just waved at you. He says, Hawking's statement about philosophy, being dead, is itself a philosophical statement. It's manifestly not a statement of science. It's a metaphysical, beyond the physics, a metaphysical philosophical statement about science. Therefore, his statement that philosophy is dead contradicts itself. It's a classic example of logical incoherence. So this is what you get when you have someone who's very intelligent, clearly, very well-informed within his subject area, stepping outside of the bounds of that subject area and how that can lead to saying very dumb things. This is Professor George Ellis, who's the president of the International Society for the Science and Religion. And he says, well, philosophy's not dead. Every point of view is imbued with philosophy. Why is science worth doing? The answer is philosophical. Science can't answer that question about itself, 
And those who were in the session yesterday would have seen a whole host of uh, assumptions of science that I went through that science has to assume are true in order to be done, but which science itself can't justify because they're philosophical assumptions. Uh, This is Professor William Lane Craig, a well-known Christian philosopher from the States, and actually he's doing a UK tour later this year in October, and he'll be doing a debate in Manchester against Peter Atkins from Oxford, one of the new atheists, and doing uh, various events around the country. And he really pulls no punches in responding to Hawking on this. He says, despite their claim to speak as scientific torchbearers of knowledge, what Hawking and Mladenow are engaged in is philosophy. Why then do they pronounce philosophy dead and claim as scientists to be bearing the torch of discovery? Simply because that enables them to cloak their amateurish philosophizing with the mantle of scientific authority. And so avoid the hard work of actually arguing for rather than merely asserting their philosophical viewpoints. Ouch. And indeed, Stephen Hawking and his co-author have a very unusual concept of what science is all about, a very unusual philosophy of science, which makes their book very puzzling. They say this, according to our philosophy of science, if there are two models, two different scientific models, that both agree with observation, one cannot say that one is more real than the other. And they talk about creation, and they say one possible model of creation is favoured by those who maintain that the account given in Genesis is literally true. One can also have a different model in which time continues back 13.7 billion years to the Big Bang. And then they say this, neither model can be said to be more real than the other. For Hawking and his co-author, scientific models might differ from each other, but if you want to ask the question, well, which of these two models is true... That question doesn't really arise. Science is not the search for a true explanation of things, a true understanding of reality. And what does this do when later on in the book he might refer to various scientific theories as having something to say about the truth of issues about whether or not there's a creator? If he's not claiming that the scientific theories that he's talking about are true. Very, very odd. Just something interesting to bear in mind. So let's move on to three arguments for the existence of God. First off, the Big Bang argument. As uh, someone I was talking to yesterday here very aptly uh, described it, they said the Big Bang, surely that's that's a description of the process by which the universe came about. That doesn't conflict with saying that there was a God who caused that process, and they hit it right on the head. This is agnostic author David Belinsky in his book The Devil's Delusion, which is a response to the New Atheist movement from an agnostic viewpoint. And he says, there is a very natural connection between the fact that the universe had a beginning and the hypothesis that it had a creator. The Big Bang singularity strikes an uncomfortably theistic note. Well, let's reason this through with a few steps of argument. You can see in the video here, 
uh, a satellite called the COBE satellite, which was sent up in the 1980s to record the microwave background radiation of the universe. And what we basically have here, red is hot, blue is cold. And we're seeing a series of slides that are basically over time, as it were, showing that as you come from the past to the present, you've got more blue and less red. So the universe is cooling down over time as you get from the past into the present. And you, you do that by taking pictures at different distances because energy takes time to travel to us. It's one of the key pieces of evidence that went into backing up the so-called Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe. Basically, just as if you had a hot mug of coffee in the room and you left it alone, the coffee would get cooler and the room would get ever so slightly warmer until the temperature would equalise over the two of them. Things cool down over time. Well, look, if the universe has been cooling down over time, basically, as the universe has been getting bigger... The amount of heat that there is has to be distributed over a bigger and bigger area, so every area of the universe gets cooler. And so if you run that backwards, the universe, as you go back in time, is getting hotter and hotter because it's getting smaller and smaller. And all that heat that's now distributed everywhere is getting more and more concentrated until you get back to the beginning of the Big Bang, which was really, really, really hot and really, really, really small. So... Modern science gives us very good reason to believe this premise, this truth claim in an argument that I've put up here. There was a first physical event. If you got in Doctor Who's TARDIS and you went backwards in time, eventually you'd get to a day where you couldn't go to the previous day. Because there wasn't a previous day. That's the first day. The first hour, the first minute, the first whatever. In the series of physical events in history, there was a first one, according to the Big Bang Theory. Well, premise two, if I make this claim, like domino toppling here, every physical event has a cause of some kind. It relates to a cause outside of itself. That certainly seems to be our everyday experience of the world and something we assume in order to do science. We look at stuff and we say, what's the explanation? But think what happens if you put those two truth claims together. There was a first physical event. Every physical event has a cause from which it follows, of course, that therefore the first physical event had a cause. It's already beginning to sound interesting, isn't it? Let's extend the thinking just a little bit. Let's carry forward that conclusion. First physical event had a cause. And add this bit of information. Well, obviously, the cause, whatever it was, of the first physical event cannot itself have been a physical cause. It would be a bit like looking at a series of dominoes toppling over, saying, OK, this last domino fell over, that was because it was hit by the previous domino. Well, why did that fall over? Well, because it was hit by the previous domino. What about the first domino in the series? Oh, well, that was caused to fall over because it was hit by the previous domino. What? It's the first domino. There was no previous domino. If the first physical event, there was no previous physical event, but if all physical events must have a cause, there must be a cause that is not itself a physical cause. 
So some supernatural, non-physical cause of that first physical event. And the most plausible candidate for a supernatural, non-physical cause of the first physical event is surely a person of some kind, a mind, an intention, something very much like at least part of what people tend to mean by God. There's the, the whole argument in steps laid out for you there. So I actually think that the scientific evidence that we have for the Big Bang Theory points very plausibly towards the idea that there was, in fact, a creator, a cause of that Big Bang process. The Big Bang describes the the beginnings of the universe, but it doesn't answer the question, why did it begin? But God certainly would. Well, of course, Hawking's not going to take this lying down, as it were. He says, it's reasonable to ask who or what created the universe. At least we agree it's a sensible question. But he says, if the answer is God created the universe, then the question's merely been deflected. You've just shifted the ruckle in the carpet to somewhere else, basically. It's been deflected to the question, well, who created God? And you will hear this question time and time again, particularly from the New Atheist movement, as an objection to saying that God created the universe. Well, if you say that, well, who made God? Ha-ha, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Craig responds in one way. He says, look, in order for an explanation to be the best explanation of something, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. Such a requirement, if you said that you do need that, such a requirement would generate an infinite regress so that everything becomes completely inexplicable. If you said, oh, what's the explanation for this uh, cadaver in the morgue? You say, oh, well, it was murder. You say, yeah, but, but why did the murder take place? What was the motive? We don't know the motive. You've not explained anything. Well, no, we've explained something. Just that there's more to know about the, the explanation. It doesn't mean that it, murder is not a perfectly good explanation for why the cadaver is in the morgue with a knife in its back. You know. <laughs> John Lennox responds in a slightly different way. He says, look, Hawking here, when he says, well, what created God? He's giving an argument that serves only to reveal the inadequacy of his concept of God. To ask the question, who created God, logically presupposes, just assumes, that God is a created thing, a created entity. It's just begging the question against the possibility that there could exist something that's uncreated. Uh, I quite like Lennox's quip when he sometimes says, look, if if Richard Dawkins had written a book called, called The Created God Delusion, it would probably have sold a lot fewer copies. Nobody believes in created gods. And actually, Hawking's who made God question is quite a fruitful question. It can be given a perfectly reasonable answer, given a couple of very plausible assumptions. You might have heard of this phrase, from nothing, nothing comes. Julie Andrews sings it in... uh, Oh, I've forgotten the name of the film temporarily. The Hills are Alive with the Sound of Music and all of that. From nothing, nothing comes. And also, there can't be an infinite regress of causes. You can't just keep going on and back and back and back and back and back and keep passing the buck forever. 
Well, given those assumptions, it follows that, as it were, the causal buck has to stop somewhere. And theists have always thought of God as being that somewhere. In other words, the answer to the question, well, who made God, is nothing made God. God is the uncaused first cause. Unlike physical events, God by nature doesn't need causes. And you can put that into a very nice, simple argument. It only has two premises and a conclusion. It goes like this. It says, number one, some things are caused by other things. If you can even think of one example of something that's real, but that has a cause. Maybe yourself, or the chair you're sat on. Okay? Seems eminently plausible premise. Physical events. The first physical event. Some things are caused by other things. But premise two. It's impossible for everything that exists to be a caused thing. I mean, after all, what outside of everything is there to do any causing? Outside of everything is... Well, nothing. <laughs> and from nothing, nothing comes. So it can't be the case everything is caused. Caused by what? And there can't be an infinite regress of causes either. You could put it that way. Well, given that those two premises are true, it follows that therefore something must exist that exists without a cause. And again, that's certainly part of what religious people have traditionally meant by God. Hawking again. In this view, it's accepted that some entity exists that needs no creator. And that entity is called God. This is known as the first cause argument for God. Yes, it is, but Hawking confuses it with the Big Bang argument. And you can see from the fact that one's quite long and one's quite short that they're different arguments. Uh, We claim, however, that it is possible to answer these questions of existence purely within the realm of science, and indeed by that they mean within the realm of, of material, natural things, without invoking any divine beings. Well, okay, let's give them a fair shake of the stick. Peter Atkins, fellow new atheist, warns that the unfolding of absolutely nothing into something is a problem of the profoundest difficulty, and currently far beyond the reach of science, but he's kind of holding out hope. (laughs) But as Craig says, science cannot explain why anything exists, ultimately. Physics is inherently applicable to being. In physics, you're seeking to explain things, okay? Things that exist. It's impossible for there to be a physics of non-being. Non-being doesn't have some sort of set of physical laws that describes it. There isn't an it. It's nothing. Nothing means nothing. As Parmenides of Elidia said, this is where it all goes back to an ancient Greek chap, 5th century BC. They recognised that it's just a metaphysical fact that from nothing, nothing comes. I, you can't get an effect without a cause. That's almost true by definition, isn't it? An effect is something that has a cause. Well, Hawking and Mladenov say, bodies such as stars or black holes cannot just 
appear out of nothing. Marvellous, I agree with them. But a whole universe can. (laughs) Well, here's my tentative question. Um, How will Hawking justify making an exception on behalf of the whole universe to the principle that from nothing, nothing comes? Answer, very badly. He says, on the scale of the entire universe, the positive energy of the matter, let's get this a little bit scientific here, the positive energy, because you know in modern physics, matter and energy are convertible. They're basically different states of the same thing. That's why you can have an atom bomb, which converts matter into a huge amount of energy. They can be converted. The positive energy of the matter can be balanced by the negative gravitational energy. Think of these two kind of physical forces kind of um, counteracting each other, balancing out like people on a seesaw. And so there's no restriction on the creation of the whole universe out of nothing. Now, I'd have to go a little bit into sort of quantum mechanics to flesh that out, but we don't really need to to see why his point here is not really applicable. It's a bit like saying... Let's just give you an analogy. Because the mathematical sum of my bank account with £100 in it and my other bank account that's £100 in debt, because the mathematical sum of those two, two accounts is zero, mathematically speaking, therefore I have no money and no bank accounts. Because the positive energy of the matter of the universe and the negative Uh, of the gravitational force sum to zero you can get something out of zero out of nothing well that is like saying 100 and minus 100 in two bank accounts means not only do I have no money I have no bank accounts Um, zero here is the mathematical sum of two actual things that exist So zero here does not mean the same thing as nothing. He's just playing around with words. And Peter Atkins, interestingly, actually disagrees with Hawking on this one. He says there are no laws in a universe that does not exist. There are no laws of matter or gravity or the summing of them if there's nothing Nothing has no properties, says Atkins, and thus does not undergo quantum fluctuations from which you could get something out of nothing. Dr. Rowan, fantastic picture of Dr. Rowan Williams here. He puts it uh, rather nicely. He says, physical laws are about the regular relations between actual realities. I cannot see how they explain the bare fact that there are is any reality at all if physical laws are about realities they describe realities how do you use them to explain why there is any reality for them to describe it's going off in the wrong direction Hawking so John Lennox in his little book sums it up really well where he basically says Hawking and his uh, co-writer contradict themselves on at least three levels and in philosophy it doesn't get any worse than being self-contradictory because that means it cannot be true he says Hawking says that the universe 
comes from a nothing that turns out to be a something. And then he says that the universe creates itself. His notion that a law of nature, gravity, explains the existence of the universe is also self-contradictory, since a law of nature, by definition, surely depends for its own existence on the prior existence of the nature it purports to describe. Thus, the main conclusion of the book turns out not simply to be a self-contradiction, which would be disaster enough, but a triple self-contradiction. Philosophers might just be tempted to comment, hmm, so that's what comes of saying philosophy is dead. (laughs) So, so far, so good. Two arguments down, one to go. Taken together, the Big Bang and the first cause arguments powerfully point to the existence of some transcendent, non-physical, uncaused, personal, first cause of the whole universe. But there's also the kind of structure of that universe coming out of the Big Bang. Not the mere fact that it does exist, but what kind of thing is it? We can look at something called the fine-tuning argument. Let me give you this analogy. Supposing we had this fantastic, giant, universe-creating machine. uh, And we put on this machine one sort of dial for every law of nature we might want to give a universe and we can turn the dial to make that law stronger or weaker relative to all of the other ones. So we have a dial for gravity and a dial for the nuclear force and so on. If that machine were representing the way our universe actually is and you took just one of those dials and twiddled it a very small percentage so you just change one thing by a little bit then you press the create a universe button The surprising thing that scientists have discovered in the last sort of 50 years or so is that the result would be very, very dull. It would not be this magnificent, complex, variegated universe that we see around us today. It would be something so short-lived that you didn't even get matter existing, perhaps. It certainly wouldn't be anything in which you had uh, chemistry going on, let alone biology going on. As Hawking says, the laws of nature form a system that is extremely fine-tuned. It's been likened sometimes to Goldilocks's uh, seeking of the porridge. You know, one porridge is far too hot, one porridge is far too cold, but the, you know, the little baby's porridge was just right, and we live in what's been called a just-right universe. Paul Davies, uh, cosmologist, wrote a fascinating book on it called The Goldilocks Enigma. Extremely fine-tuned, admits Hawking, and very little in physical law can be altered without destroying the possibility of the development of life. Here's Paul Davies. Yeah, I'm going to quote from him. Um, He says in that book, The Goldilocks Enigma, why the universe is just right for life, Everyone, everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it were designed for life. The only question on the table for debate is really whether that appearance is deceptive or is actually telling us something true about the nature of reality. Well, of course, the biblical view on this is that indeed the universe was not only caused by God, but designed by him. 
He didn't just sort of accidentally do it one day as a, as a doodle and kind of go, oh, good grief, I've created a universe. You know, he had a plan in mind. He had some intentions that he wanted to fulfill, including perhaps the existence of lots of interesting, complicated things and people and butterflies and all sorts. So Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4 puts it in a nice analogy. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything, the whole show. Well, Craig nicely puts it into an argument for us again. Again, two premises, two truth claims that, if they're true, lead to a conclusion. This fine-tuning of the universe, you can only explain it in a limited number of ways. He says it's either due to physical necessity, or chance, or design. So if you can rule out necessity and chance, you can say it's not due to physical necessity and chance, it would follow that it is due to design. Well, Hawking agrees that the fine-tuning is not due to physical necessity. He talks about his favourite theory of everything. It's one uh, family of string theories called M-theory. We needn't go into it. But basically, he says it allows for a huge number of different possible ways that the universe could consistently exist. Uh, 10 to the power of 500 different possible kinds of universe could be described by this one theory that he favours. Now, to give you some idea of how huge a number that is, there are about 10 to the 80 fundamental particles in the universe. So 10 to the 500 is a number that's so big that if I could write a one and then lots of zeros on every fundamental particle in the universe, I would run out of universe before I'd written the number down. (laughs) The original hope of physicists to produce a single theory explaining the apparent laws of our universe as the unique possible consequence of some few simple assumptions may have to be abandoned. In other words, he's saying things could have been different. They didn't have to be this way. The, The way things are is not due to some physical necessity. It appears that the fundamental numbers and even the form of the laws of nature are not determined by logic or by physical principle. So we can go back to our argument and we can cross out necessity, which leaves us with either chance or design. So let's have a look at the chance option. Hawking again, there seems to be a vast landscape of possible universes. However... If the universe, notice the if here, if the universe were only slightly different, beings like us would not exist. What are we to make of this fine-tuning? Is it evidence that the universe, after all, was designed? It could have been different. If it was, we wouldn't be here. Does it, it looks like a, a, a set-up job, as uh, Paul Davis was saying. Well... Let me give you a sub-argument here. Uh, Craig refers to the work of a mathematician from the States called William Dembski, who basically notes this. In a poker game, any deal of cards is equally highly improbable. One possible combination of cards amongst all the huge number of possible combinations of cards. But if every time a certain player dealt the cards, he got all four aces. 
you could bet that this is not the result of chance, but design. You know, if you were playing cards in Dodge City, and every time you dealt, you got the winning hand, and the other cowboys around the table pull out their six shooters and say, you're cheating, you varmint, you know. They're not going to be happy with the reply, hey, look, any deal of cards is equally as unlikely as any other. (laughs) So Dembski puts it like this. He says, given some object or event or structure to, to convince ourselves that it's designed, we need to show that it's improbably and suitably patterned. And it's these two things together. It's not just improbability that tells us that something's designed. It's improbability or complexity, is another way of saying that, plus what Dempsey calls a specification, some independently given pattern that you haven't just read off the event. You know, if you shoot an arrow into a big wall, walk up to it with a paint pot and draw, draw a circle around it, and then say, hey, look what a good archer I am, no one is convinced, okay? But if there already is a pattern out there, <coughs> twang, and it hits the centre of that, you know, then you're Robin Hood, It wasn't just by luck, if it's a big enough wall. So think of it by analogy with playing Scrabble, taking the Scrabble pieces, letters out of a bag, sight unseen. Supposing you draw out of the Scrabble bag this sequence of letters. I won't even try and pronounce it for you. Well, you could very easily get away without saying that that sequence of letters happened by design, couldn't you? It's very complex, it's very unlikely that you would draw that particular pattern out of the bag. It's just one sequence of of those letters out of a huge number of possible sequences of that length. However, it's not specified. It doesn't hit some independently known or knowable pattern. By contrast, if you drew out D, O, G... Well, you could still comfortably get away without thinking that it was designed, couldn't you? Because although it is specified, it does hit an independently given pattern, it's not a very long sequence, it's not very unlikely, it's not very complex. But, supposing you drew out this sentence from the Scrabble bag. This is from Plato's uh, Laws. He says, all things do become, have become, and will become, some by nature, some by art, design, and some by chance. Supposing you drew that out, the Scrabble bag, sight unseen, well, then you'd be highly suspicious that someone had pulled a trick, wouldn't you? Because this sequence of letters is both very unlikely, very complex, and specified. And it's clearly the product of art, of design. If I took your bank card, put it into a hole in the wall machine, punched in a number, took out your money, and you said to me, how did you not only get my bank card, but how did you get my PIN number? You would not be satisfied by me saying, oh, I just took a guess. I was lucky. Hey, any any sequence of four digits that I put in is equally as unlikely as any other. Because I've put in the only sequence of numbers that will let me access your money. If you have a very unlikely set of physical laws, which is the only or one of a very small subset of of sequences of laws that will permit something interesting rather than something dull, which would be the majority of cases, to happen, then that is highly suspicious, isn't it? What is really being argued here against the chance idea is this. Things that exhibit this 
specified complexity pattern are probably designed. The fine-tuning of the universe exhibits this specified complexity. So the fine-tuning of the universe probably was designed and not the result of chance. Now Hawking accepts premise one. He says the problem that he's trying to solve is that we have a very special and highly improbable set of laws. Very special, highly improbable. That is, specified complexity is the issue that he's trying to get away from here. Well, coming on to premise two, Hawking then asserts that while the universe is indeed set up in a special way, a specified way, he says, well, actually, it's not set up in a complex way. It's not complex enough to trigger a design inference. Why? Because there are lots of different universes out there. There are many universes, multiple universes out there, all slightly different from each other, and there are enough of them that, by chance, one of them would hit this specification for life. He's really arguing this. If there were enough different universes out there, I mean, he can't point to any, if there were enough, then the specified fine-tuning of our universe wouldn't be complex enough to indicate design. Premise two is that clearly that there are enough different universes out there from which it would follow that it's not designed, or you don't have to invoke design to explain it at least. But I've got premise two flashing away here because he's just asserted it. He said, if this were the case, maybe this is the case, he hasn't actually given you really any reason to believe that it is the case. It's a bit like this. You'll have heard the old canon about if you had enough monkeys or chimps in this case typing away randomly and enough typewriters for long enough, they could produce the entire works of William Shakespeare. The experiment was actually tried in a, in a zoo once and they, they um, used it, the typewriter as a lavatory. <laughs> they didn't get very far. But... Um, <sighs> Think of it like this. If X number of chimps existed, then they could produce Shakespeare's works by chance. So why is it that when someone holds up a copy of the works of William Shakespeare, you don't immediately think, aha, somewhere there must be a heck of a lot of chimps. <laughs> Anyone faced with the many chimps hypothesis as an actual explanation for Shakespeare's work, is going to ask this question. Is there any independent reason to think that X number of chimps actually exists? And until someone gives you that, in, you know, opens the door and you look into this huge warehouse full of chimps typing away, then you're perfectly within your rational rights to go for the William Shakespeare hypothesis rather than the many chimps hypothesis. I think something completely parallel holds about the many-universe hypothesis versus the designer hypothesis. For this, and for several other reasons which I don't have time to go into, I think Hawking's objection to the second premise here just falls flat on its face. So, let's start drawing the threads together here. Hawking says, if M theory, his favourite theory of everything, is, is finite, if it's finite, and this has yet to be proved... It will be a model of a universe that creates itself. Well, A, notice that Hawking explicitly admits that his favourite theory of everything that he's appealing to in the book has yet to be proved. 
It's not even claiming that it's true. Secondly, notice that it won't be proved. It couldn't be proved because, as we've seen, it's logically incoherent. It contradicts itself on several levels. It just can't be true. And third, think back to Hawking's philosophy of science. This is why the book is so bemusing. On Hawking's own philosophy of science, it doesn't even make sense to claim that M-theory is true. Because he doesn't think that scientific theories are things that are true or false. He just thinks of them as sort of useful, things that we like more than others, or what have you. Bizarre. So let me summarise this by doctoring the front page of the Times for you and giving you the uh, sort of uh, headline bullet points, as it were. Hawking wrong. God did create universe. Not a front page of the Times we're ever likely to see, I fear. But there you go. Hawking's theory. Self-contradictory. Big Bang needed Big Banger. (laughs) Buck stops with God. Just Right Universe put up job. Thank you very much.